You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, here from New York City. And this is Prashant Parameswaran from Washington, D.C. How are you doing today, Prashant? Good to see you. Good. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well. Um, and uh, for listeners, we're going to divide this episode into two parts, like we used to do in the early days of the podcast. We haven't been doing that recently, but I think there's enough uh, that merits uh, discussion on today's episode that I think this will be a good approach. And I guess the unifying theme of the two things we're going to talk about is um, is Southeast Asia and the shifting military landscape around the Southeast Asian littoral, broadly speaking. So the first thing we're going to talk about on today's episode is this very interesting report that appeared um, just a few days ago on a Monday, July 22nd in the Wall Street Journal detailing a secret agreement between China and Cambodia for a naval outpost. Now, if you've been reading The Diplomat and you've been following uh, the Cambodia-China relationship. There have been rumors of this and pretty credible reports, some people doing work with satellite imagery. So this isn't necessarily surprising, but a lot of the details in the report I think are interesting. So we'll talk a bit about that. And then Prashant and I want to pivot over slightly towards the east, where we'll talk about the still ongoing standoff between Vietnam and China over oil exploration in um, on Vietnam's continental shelf in in waters that China also claims. So we'll talk a little bit about those two things today. But uh, Prashant, obviously, this is, um, you know, I'm excited to have you on for this episode, given that you follow all of these countries very closely. Uh, I wanted to begin with your sort of reaction to the Wall Street Journal report on, on the Cambodian naval base. So do you want to maybe begin by just telling listeners that might have missed the story what the broad takeaway is, and then we can maybe talk a little bit about the significance? Sure. Um, and, I, and I think this, as you said, it, it's an important development, not only for its own sake, but also within the context of um, you know, China's influence and, and ongoing activities in Southeast Asia more generally. So the, the Wall Street Journal uh, article that you referred to that came out uh, during the weekend, um, essentially what was breaking about it and what was new was the fact that there had been a secret agreement that were reached between China and Cambodia with respect to uh, a facility on, on Riam Naval Base. And this is a, a base that lies on the coast of the Gulf of Thailand, so a pretty strategic area. Um, and it's been previously used as a site of um, exercises and engagements between the United States and Cambodia. And, and the idea that was advanced in the article, which we should stress, it's, it's all anonymously sourced given the sensitivity of the information, but the Wall Street Journal claims that it's read some of the exchanges between the, the United States um, and also between China and Cambodia on these agreements, it's for exclusive Chinese access to part of that base for up to 30 years um, and renewable um, thereafter. Um, and we will allow the Chinese to put in you know, significant amounts of personnel and facilities. And this was essentially be, you know, we've talked about previously on this podcast, right? The idea of uh, China getting more places rather than bases for, for its location, whether you consider facilities like Djibouti or, or, or facilities like Gwadar, this would be its first uh, essential base or facility in Southeast Asia of this kind, which is why it's quite significant. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we're having this discussion right, uh, I guess, one day before China is supposed to release its 
2019 white paper on national defense. And when the 2015 white paper came out, one of the main emphasis um, emphases was the more uh, global expeditionary mission for the PLA, working towards becoming a global maritime power. And we then saw the base pop up in Djibouti. So this will be the second base overall. Um, many of these other facilities that have been under scrutiny for a while, including Gwadar, Hambantota, remain um, unmilitarized. So they're not officially becoming mm -hmm. bases. But in Cambodia, there's a few things that are of concern. There's uh, the the facility that's being built um, on the coast uh, near the um, Rim uh, Naval Base that Cambodia uses. And then there's the nearby airstrip and the airport. So one of the things that Americans are worried about but uh, specifically, and this is an important detail, I think, in the Wall Street Journal report that I think a few people um, muddled a little uh, when talking about the issue, which was that the agreement that the journal's reporters saw was about the naval base and what China could put on that facility, as you said. But the airstrip nearby, that's a major concern, because if China were to have a, an airstrip in Cambodia, that has important implications for its ability to then use um, use that facility for uh, support, logistics, resupply, and even strike missions uh, in, a, in a conflict in the South China Sea and the Gulf of Thailand. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a really important point to emphasize. So even though the, the bulk of the journal's reporting is on the naval base, um, there have been um, separate concerns, but of course related concerns about um, these facilities or potential facilities that are dual use that are being uh, built around the area or nearby with respect to Kokong. And, and the reason why that's significant is, you know, the Chinese have claimed, as they've claimed in, in other uh, aspects of dual use facilities, that this is totally economic and it's tied to this investment zone called Dara Sakor. Mm -hmm. um, with respect to the Belt and Road Initiative. But as you correctly noted, um, there are clear military implications that would arise if the Chinese were to use this for uh, security purposes. And, you know, all the estimates that I've seen um, are the fact that, you know, any economic investment opportunity in this area, when you compare that to what is actually being uh, built with respect to satellite imagery, um, you know, it's not enough to support any kind of civilian or economic opportunity in and of itself. So clearly there's something else that's going on, irrespective of whether you want to call it a base or a dual use facility or or, or what have you. So clearly something fishy is going on mm -hmm. between, you know, between the naval base as well as this other facility that we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, you know, let's talk a bit about sort of the leading indicators that we've had that this this was coming, um, right? So we had the reports last year that Mike Pence had written Hun Sen a report saying that we're concerned about the base that the Chinese are building on your territory. And th that was a briefly lived news cycle. It didn't get huge, except for those of us who follow Asian security kind of talked about it a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. But then more broadly, going back further, I mean, just Hun Sen's relationship with China and uh, Xi Jinping um, in the Xi Jinping era specifically, I think we've had a lot of indications that Cambodia is very much putting all of its eggs in, in the China basket for a while now. Um, and I want to ask you, because I know, you know, uh, you look at Cambodia a lot more closely than I do in general. Um, what other indicators um, do you think were were in place kind of um, pointing pointing to this outcome? I think the, the big one, uh, particularly from the perspective of the United States, was the fact that, um, the, you know, you had this uh, notion of increasing Chinese influence in Cambodia. But, um, you know, a few years ago, the Chinese began to make significant military inroads there in terms of new exercises, um, really pushing on military equipment. China's always been uh, Cambodia's sort of number one military partner and provider um, in the last uh, few decades, particularly under Hun Sen's rule. 
but um, it really was pushing on that. And at the same time, the Cambodians actually reneged on several of the existing pledges they had with respect to military assistance with the United States. And I think at that point, the United States started sort of thinking that, well, China's influence in Cambodia actually comes at the expense of U.S. influence in Cambodia. And you saw you know, the cancellation of U.S. exercises that happened in Cambodia right before uh, the recent general elections that took place. Um, you saw, you know, the suspension of military linkages. And at that point, um, you know, I think the United States in particular were, was quite concerned about um, whether this was kind of a point of, of no return. I, I think the other thing I would cite as well is, um, you know, we're talking about this from the perspective of, uh, you know, U.S.-China and, and, and Cambodia and, and U.S.-China competition in Southeast Asia. You know, this also has implications for other neighboring states, right? We're going to be talking about Vietnam later. Um, you know, the Vietnamese and, and the Thais would also be concerned about, you know, growing Chinese military inroads in Cambodia. These are two powers that have wanted, you know, significant, uh, you know, sort of uh, significant attention and sort of significant uh, influence in mainland Southeast Asia. So this is something that not only affects the balance of power when you think about the United States and China, it also affects how mainland Southeast Asian countries react uh, with each other. And I think in the last few years, the Chinese inroads in Cambodia have also alarmed both Thailand and Vietnam uh, independently as well. Right. I mean, this very much, uh, you know, I actually wanted to ask you about this, is that this cuts at um, one of the core principles of ASEAN, right? And uh, I think the grouping, uh, if and when this base is sort of publicly announced, uh, you know, if that's ever going to happen, um, I think I think that's really going to pose a, a further challenge for the grouping. And obviously, this is all happening while ASEAN still in negotiations over the finalization of the code of conduct with China and the South China Sea. And uh, Cambodia has obviously been an important sort of ally for China within the ASEAN arrangement for several years now. So I think I think that's absolutely a valid point. Another thing I wanted to uh, you know get your thoughts on is it's it's interesting because you know we are going to run into this issue that uh, that China is going to go around the world and begin converting dual use facilities into whatever you want to call it bases or logistics um, supply nodes as the Chinese like to call the Djibouti facility somewhat euphemistically. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know one of the arguments that the United States has put forward to many of these smaller countries in the Indo Pacific is that. Part of the reason you should support a free and open Indo-Pacific is because we want to maximize your sovereignty to help you undertake the choices that you do. And I, and I feel like it's interesting because, you know, Cambodia is not Sri Lanka. It's not Pakistan. It's not Malaysia in many ways where you have this narrative of China coming in and taking advantage of um, whatever um, whatever government happens to be in power with predatory loans, uh, projects that don't really make sense. And the Cambodian sense is really seems like a sovereign decision to opt into a security sphere in continental Southeast Asia where China has a greater sense of influence. So I'm wondering if if that you know message is is sort of going up against these active US efforts now to lobby Hun Sen to you know reverse course on allowing China to undertake development. Uh, but it's sort of a you know partially formed idea. So I, I'm curious if you uh, have anything to say on that. It, it is, I think, a, a big question and concern, right? Because I think the Sometimes when you look at the rhetoric that is coming out and in, in the conversation that, you know, between this sort of notion of U.S.-China competition, whether it's on Belt and Road or, or the military sphere, uh, the impression that's been giving out is, you know, there's a focus on what the Chinese are doing in these areas and sort of, you know, China is pushing this, it's pushing predatory loans. But, you know, what if you have a situation where these countries are actually willing to 
buy into this bargain that the Chinese are striking, which is that, hey, listen, we'll give you increasing um, you know, economic trade and investment. We won't ask questions about regime leg legitimacy. And we're offering you a better bargain than what Western countries can offer you. Um, and countries like Cambodia might be willing to actually take that on, even if they are actually quite conscious of the costs that are actually involved, right? And I think it's important to stress here that you know, regime security may not be the same as national security. So when the United States and other sort of allies and partners make this argument that, hey, Cambodia, you're not looking out for your national interests. Well, you know, you have a regime in Cambodia um, and Hun Sen that is actually willing to put its own interests first. And so if China props up that regime, um, I'm not surprised that that regime would consider it in its interest to kind of move forward on this, right? Um, and so that does create uh, an issue for the United States and, and allies and partners. I think, you know, the argument that's been uh, that's been made with some of these facilities is, for example, the Wall Street Journal talked about the fact that this uh, alleged secret agreement, you know, has some of these terms that um, strike observers as, you know, pretty concerning, right? The fact that you have an agreement for a base for up to 30 years, there's exclusive Chinese access, you know, do the Cambodians know what they're actually doing? Um, but the fact that the United States has raised these concerns multiple times, right, and the Cambodian government is well aware of what these concerns are, it doesn't strike me as this is something that the Cambodians are going into uninitiated. I think they're very aware of what uh, conditions are being sought by the Chinese, and I think they're willingly entering into this agreement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, all right, so let's uh, shift gears briefly. We'll uh, we'll come back to the Cambodia issue, I'm sure, in a future episode when more information mm -hmm. does become available on that front. Uh, but I wanted to briefly address this um, standoff that's quite significant and, and still underway uh, between Vietnam and China. So uh, for listeners, um, for over the course of a few weeks now. I'm not really exactly sure when things started, but uh, it is. It has been a matter of weeks, uh, despite the fact that it was publicized uh, a little over a week ago. Um, a Chinese survey ship uh, has been conducting sort of exploration activities in an oil block on Vietnam's continental shelf within the exclusive economic zone and under UNCLOS, the uh, international law concerning um, rights to these um, waters and, and waters uh, worldwide. Coastal states like Vietnam uh, presumably have the exclusive rights to economically exploit those resources. But of course, here we're entering the classic sort of South China Sea uh, dispute issue where China treats those waters as its sovereign territory under its nine dash line claims. So we we have a problem. We have this Chinese survey ship accompanied by a Chinese a China Coast Guard. Um, now at least two ships, including the uh, Haijing thirty nine zero one, which is one of the largest Coast Guard vessels anywhere in the world. It's a it's a rather massive ship, and um, th the Chinese have really been uh, involved in directly coercing Vietnam, including the Vietnam Coast Guard away from these oil blocks. So the the issue here is that China is exercising its um, its capabilities and its maritime law enforcement capabilities in particular to coerce South China Sea, um, a South China Sea coastal state from rightfully exploiting resources that should be its own under international law. And we have a few other examples in recent years of um, of of this kind of activity. We can go back to the 2014 standoff between Vietnam and China that was really sort of a watershed moment for the relationship between the two countries insofar as their South China Sea dispute was concerned. That was the year that in May, China moved uh, the Haiyang Shio 981 oil, oil, well, um, oil drilling platform into disputed waters, sparking a major standoff involving scores of ships on both sides, including maritime militia vessels. 
Um, so this has been ongoing. And what's been interesting is that the United States State Department took more of an interest in this than it has in some other recent issues in the South China Sea, putting out a statement condemning China for its bullying behavior and, and its um, practice of coercion against Vietnam. Um, as, as we're recording this, there's been a little bit of a lull in the data coming out. The Vietnamese foreign ministry released a statement calling on China to exit its waters, but with the exclusion of the fact that an additional China Coast Guard vessel has reportedly moved near the survey ship to protect its activities, uh, there's been little update um, on, on what exactly is transpiring on the water. Um, there's been a lot of good work done on the details of the movements of many of these vessels by um, the CSIS Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative in particular uh, and, and a few other sources. Um, so Prashant, looking at the ongoing standoff, um, how do you how do you see the two sides getting out of this, or is this really going to be the moment when China simply carries on pushing forward, and Vietnam really finds itself having very few options apart from what it's already done, which is publicly condemn the action and call on the Chinese to leave? Yeah, it, it, as you said, I mean, it it all boils down to the fact that you know at the end of the day we're dealing with um, you know a set of disputes that you know, in spite of the fact that we've had, and, and we should point out this, you know, we're, we're coming just after the third anniversary of the arbitral tribunal ruling, right, on the South China Sea, which, um, you know, even though in 2016 and, and 2017 was talked about quite a lot, um, you know, that ruling has essentially been, you know, continues to be violated um, by China that is con continuing to exercise what it regards as its nine-dash line, which is essentially being operationalized. And a number of other claimant states that actually disagree with China's notion of what its uh, rights are and what its territory actually is, and so you know until you get a resolution on that, it's very difficult uh, you know for me to see some kind of definitive uh, resolution to this issue. I would also say it does seem that the Chinese are are trying to and and are getting more comfortable with you know what. I think some uh, Chinese have referred to as sort of the new normal in the South China Sea, right? Where um, you do have some freedom of navigation operations carried out by the United States, some presence operations by other partners that are occurring. But in spite of that, you know, China has had no issues with periodically coercing other claimants in the South China Sea, intercepting some of its, uh, you know, oil and gas uh, exploration efforts. And making clear to individual claimants that uh, there are certain kinds of behaviors that China won't tolerate, and it's prepared to actually escalate things. And you know, if there are tensions and potential conflict, China is actually wearing, willing to bear the costs of these actions um, in order to make sure that it enforces what it sees as its rightful claims. As you pointed out, I think one of the interesting variables in this is the United States and its approach to the South China Sea. We definitely have seen the Trump administration. Uh, speak out more fervently on these issues, including resource issues, which was not the case a few years ago. Um, but I, I do wonder and be interested to hear your thoughts on this. You know, we are sort of still in this continuing situation where I do feel that, you know, other regional partners are are sort of looking to the United States to say, well, if the Chinese continue to violate um, these provisions and these these laws and principles that you've talked about, the United States is really the only country that's going to be able to actually counter China, given its vast asymmetry of capabilities relative to Southeast Asian states. The only question is, is the United States willing to do that? And my impression is we don't have a, a resolution on that question yet under the Trump administration, even though the rhetoric um, is a lot more strident, right? 
Yeah, I mean, um, you know, one example of that would be, and this is something I don't think is going to happen at all, uh, would be, you know, U.S. naval assets accompanying Vietnamese survey ships in these oil blocks, mm -hmm. right? That would be a huge step. Vietnam's not even a treaty ally, um, so that would just be a huge step. It's not U.S. policy, um, the way the United States asserts its interest in the South China Sea and freedom of navigation is through operations where the United States unilaterally protests excessive maritime claims. Um, so... Uh, but that was what makes this State Department statement kind of interesting, right? Because um, previously it was freedom of navigation that would get the United States to put statements out and to uh, push back on this kind of coercive Chinese activity. But this time it's supporting the right of a coastal state in the South China Sea to have access to its exclusive resources. And, you know, of course, um, I don't want to open up another can of worms here, Prashant, but I think mm -hmm. part of what's made this a little bit difficult for Washington uh, to kind of stand up for the ability of these states to rightfully exploit these resources is the posture of a country like the Philippines, right? right? I mean, you just brought up the fact that it's the third anniversary of the arbitral tribunal's ruling, but under Duterte, obviously, the uh, the Philippine government's position or willingness to really stick its neck out when China conducts activities in the Philippines' con uh, continental shelf or exclusive economic zone um, especially after the arbitral tribunal in 2016 actually decided on several important questions relating to the extent of the Philippines' exclusive economic zone and continental shelf. But the fact that Duterte is unwilling to stand up makes it, again, very difficult for the United States, which isn't physically in the region, right, with, with territory, to then kind of come into, uh, come into the area and then s stand up for these rights. And that's what China continues to say, is that the United States really should keep out of this because... Um, will handle this on a bilateral basis with Southeast Asian states. And uh, that, I think, is what poses the biggest problem for a country like Vietnam, which really does want to have that ballast behind it to uh, help it um, protect its own rights in the South China Sea. No, absolutely. Um, and, I, you know, the United States, as the, the Chinese are always keen to point out, um, you know, it, it isn't a claimant in the South China Sea, even though it, it claims to support uh, some of the claimants and, and, you know, the Philippines, as you said, is a, is a treaty ally of the United States. So there is that fact, but Duterte just this week, you know, in his state of the nation address, you know, directly mentioned, you know, um, China is, is doing these actions in the South China Sea. No, can anyone really stop China from doing it? Which is inherently questions, um, what other countries, including the United States can do to actually stop uh, what the Chinese are, are working on. I will say, I mean, this is something which I, I hope that these tensions get resolved. And, and I hope that, you know, 2020 perhaps will be a calmer year. But the fact that the Vietnamese are chairing ASEAN next year, um, and the fact that the Chinese have said that they want a, a code of conduct, uh, you know, whatever the value of that code of conduct is, a binding code of conduct to be negotiated in the next few years, um, means that they're going to be in the hot seat next year um, in ASEAN amid all these other developments, including, you know, uh, Cambodia's ongoing, um, you know, softening of its position on the South China Sea, which has affected ASEAN unity. So the Vietnamese will have, I suspect, a lot on their plate next year. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, so I think we're out of time, so we'll leave it there. But um, mm -hmm. I definitely want to come back to some of these issues. I think we're actually overdue for an episode on the Philippines again. So that might be uh, interesting to go back to on a future episode. But, yeah, um, sounds good. Yeah. Uh, thanks a lot for joining me, Prashant. Good to be with you. Great. And for listeners, before we close, I do want to include our uh, usual sponsor. Uh, this episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast was brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the consulting and analysis division of the Diplomat, the Asia Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. 
Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. As always, thanks a lot for listening to the episode. If you like what you heard and you want to keep up with future episodes, make sure you hit subscribe. You can do that on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or any other number of podcast providers out there. And finally, if you've been listening for a while and you like what you hear, uh, I'd really love it if you could leave us a review on any one of those platforms. It really helps get the word out about the show. So thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.